scripture this morning is Psalm 137. I am reading from the New International Version. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps. For there our captors had asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is he who repays you for what you have done to us. He who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. The word of God for the people of God. We went to the movies again this week. This week we went out to the theater together on a Tuesday night and we saw the movie Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. Wakanda Forever is the sequel to one of the most culturally important, one of the most successful superhero movies of all time. The original Black Panther movie came out in 2018, and that first Black Panther movie, it wasn't so much a film as it was a cultural phenomenon. In Black Panther, we were introduced to the fictional African nation of Wakanda, And Wakanda is a a nation with advanced technology, advanced science, advanced weapons, an advanced and educated population, and a a deep and rich culture and society. And Wakanda uh, gave us an image of of what, what could have been if the nations of Africa had not been exploited and enslaved by colonial powers. Uh, in, the, in the movie Black Panther, the leader of Wakanda is King T'Challa. And King T'Challa has got the ability to turn into a, a superhero called the Black Panther. And when that movie came out in 2018, it did things that, that no superhero movie before it had ever done. It was, it was the, the movie that proved that you can have a major blockbuster film starring an almost entirely black cast. It was the biggest superhero movie, the highest grossing superhero movie of all time. The Black Panther, played by Chadwick Boseman, very quickly became one of the most popular of all of the Marvel superheroes. And it looked like the Black Panther was about to become one of the the most successful of all of the Marvel superhero comic book film franchises. And then in 2020... Chadwick Boseman, the actor who played the Black Panther, the actor who played King T'Challa, announced that he had stage four colon cancer. And just a few weeks after that, Chadwick Boseman was gone. And as his friends and his family and his colleagues were mourning his loss off the screen, the filmmakers had some big decisions to make. The movie makers had to decide how the story was going to continue on screen. What would happen next in the story of the Black Panther? How would the story of the Black Panther go on without Chadwick Boseman? And we get the answer to that question in the first 60 seconds of Wakanda Forever. 
The movie Wakanda Forever begins with a prayer. The very first line of the movie is a prayer that's said by Princess Shuri, the sister of the Black Panther, the sister of King T'Challa. She prays as she uses all of her advanced science and all of her technology to try to save her brother's life. It doesn't work. King T'Challa dies on screen just as Chadwick Boseman died off screen. And so the nation of Wakanda goes into a period of mourning. The people of Wakanda turn their grief into song. They turn their sadness into dance. They gather together and partake in ancient rituals as they comfort each other and work through their grief and try to figure out how they can find a way forward without their leader. All of the people of Wakanda work on processing their grief and mourning all of them except for Princess Shuri. As the people are singing, Princess Shuri stands off to the side. As the people are dancing, Shuri refuses to participate. When the people who love her reach out to her and try to get her to talk about her grief, she refuses. She pushes people away. She says that her grief is so deep and her pain is so overwhelming that she is afraid to confront it head on. She is afraid to even give it words. Her grief has taken the, the, the path of deep and raging anger. And she says, she confesses to someone who loves her. She says, there's a part of me that just wants to set the whole world on fire. And then Shuri meets somebody who is happy to hand her a match. And we meet a new character in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We meet a character called Namor. And Namor is also a kind of superhero. He's a godlike figure. In fact, his own people worship him as a god. And we quickly discover that Namor and Princess Shuri have got a lot in common. Namor is also grieving the loss of someone who was very dear to him. And Namor is also feeling like his people are under threat from colonial powers. And Namor's people also have access to advanced science and technology and weapons. And Namor proposes an alliance to Shuri. He says, together, your people and my people can conquer all of the colonial powers of this world. Together, we can break those powers so our people will be safe forever. Together, you and I can set the whole world on fire, he says. And this becomes the question at the heart of the movie. What is Princess Shuri going to do with her grief? Is she going to mourn? Is she going to work through her grief? Is she going to reach out to the people who love her and find a way forward without this person who she has lost? Or is she going to set the whole world on fire? And as I was watching this movie on Tuesday night, as I was sitting there in the theater, I couldn't help but thinking, what a timely movie, what a timely message, what a timely question that is. Because you and I are living in a moment when it seems like we are surrounded by people who just want to set the world on fire. Years ago, I served a church where there was a man who was always angry. We'll call him Brian. And Brian would come to worship on Sunday morning and he would sit in a pew and he would just scowl his way through worship. 
And then after worship every Sunday, he made a point of coming over to me and telling me everything that he hadn't liked about worship that day. He would tell me what he didn't like about the sermon. He would tell me which hymns he would not have chosen. He would tell me which members of the choir needed to be cut because their voices were not up to his standards. And I found out over time that Brian wasn't just like this at the church on Sunday. He was like this everywhere with everyone. After worship, he would go out to lunch and he would harass the waitresses and he would find reasons not to leave a tip. And over time, he pushed away everyone who ever tried to get close to him by constantly turning every conversation into an argument, so many arguments about politics, about religion, about whatever was on his mind. And I have to tell you, it was exhausting. It was exhausting knowing that week after week we were going to have to be subjected to this barrage of negativity and criticism and anger. And I confess That one day I was at the church office and I was venting about Brian to some of the other people who worked there at the church. I was telling them how tired I was of the constant criticism and negativity. And as I was doing that, one of the women who was a co-worker of mine at the church, who had been at the church for longer than I had, she stopped me. She said, oh, she said, be gentle. Be gentle with Brian. And then she told me the rest of his story. She told me the story that I hadn't heard yet about Brian. She said at one time, Brian was a perfectly happy person with a job that he was good at and a wife whom he adored. And their plan for all of his working years, for all of their marriage together, was that one day he was going to retire and then they would have time to travel the world. They had this long list of places they wanted to see together. And then finally, Brian did retire. And just a few weeks after he retired, his wife had a diagnosis. And then just like that, she was gone. And this this co-worker at the church, she said, we watched him change into an almost completely different person, almost overnight. And so we are gentle with Brian because we understand, and she helped me to understand, that behind that anger, there was a, a heavy burden of deep and unhealed and unprocessed grief and pain. Brian was so angry because he had such a heavy burden of grief and pain that it felt like it would overwhelm him if he didn't share it with somebody. And so he shared it in the only way he knew how, by making other people feel just as miserable as he was. And it seems like everywhere we look today, we see Bryans, we see Shuri, we see Namor. People all around us right now, so many people are carrying a heavy load of unprocessed and unhealed grief and pain. People are grieving the world as it was before the pandemic. People are grieving loved ones they've lost in these last couple of years. People in the church are grieving the loss of a time when all you had to do was turn on the lights and open the doors and people would come pouring in. We are surrounded by people who are carrying a heavy load of grief and pain and instead of working through it together, instead of turning it into song, instead of working through it through a dance, instead of mourning through ancient rituals, people instead seem bound and determined to set the world on fire. One waitress one flight attendant, one cashier, one choir member at a time. All around us today, we see the kind of grief and pain and anger that is at the heart of the psalm that we heard just a moment ago. In today's scripture reading, we have one of the most difficult and troubling and notorious passages in all of the Bible. 
This morning in worship, we heard that psalm, the one that ends with a blessing for people who dash the heads of infants against the rock. Now, this psalm was written at a moment of deep and powerful and overwhelming grief and pain. Just about 600 years before the birth of Jesus, the city of Jerusalem was attacked by the mighty Babylonian Empire. The Babylonian army surrounded the city of Jerusalem. They camped outside the walls of the city and they laid siege to the city and they sat there for a year, for two years. They waited for two and a half years surrounding the city while the people inside the walls suffered and starved. And then finally, after two and a half years of waiting, the Babylonians were able to breach the walls. And when the walls finally fell, the Babylonians decided that the people of Jerusalem needed to be punished for holding out for so long. And so the Babylonians systematically went about destroying the entire city. First, they destroyed the temple, the place where people went to pray and worship and sing praises to God. And then they burned the city block by block until not a single home was left standing. And then they smashed the walls of the city to rubble so the people of Jerusalem would never be able to resist their army again. And then they forced the king to watch as his children were executed. And then they put out his eyes so his dying children would be the last thing he would ever see. No one was spared from the cruelty and the vengeance of the Babylonians. And when the Babylonians decided finally that the people had been completely broken and shattered, they carried the survivors away. They led an enormous caravan of thousands of captives through the wilderness to the faraway city of Babylon. And it was there, prison in in the city of Babylon, that some Jewish soul took a pen, found some parchment, and wrote this poem. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and we wept. We hung our instruments, we hung our harps and our lyres from the branches of the trees because we could not bear to make music. How could we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Let me be cursed if I ever forget Jerusalem. Let my right hand wither, let my tongue shrivel up and cling to the roof of my mouth if I ever forget Jerusalem. Blessed will be they who do to these people what they have done to us. Blessed will they be, happy will they be, who take up their little ones and dash their heads against the stones. What we have in this psalm is a cry of grief and pain. What we have in this psalm is the cry of someone who is carrying a burden so heavy that it has turned to anger that wants to set the world on fire. And these are difficult words, and this is a troubling passage. And even so, there is something powerful and even something beautiful about the fact that at some point, somebody decided that these words belonged in the Bible. The fact that these words are included in the Bible, it tells us that there is something sacred about the act of crying out to God in pain. The fact that these words are in the Bible tells us that there is something holy about shouting our grief and our anger to the heavens. The fact that these words are in the Bible, it tells us that God hears the cry of people who have been exploited and enslaved and colonized. 
The fact that these words are in the Bible, they tell us that God hears the cry of people who have watched their loved ones die. God hears the cry of people who have watched the world that they knew as it crumbled around them. God hears. God does not turn away from our grief. And so we don't have to turn away from our grief either. We can carry it into worship with us. We can sing it. We can dance it. We can shout it to the heavens. And God will receive that cry of praise, pain, as an act of praise. God hears. There's something else happening in this psalm that I want to make sure we don't miss before we, before we wrap up today. The very fact that this psalm exists, it tells us that those people who were being held captive in Babylon, they had made their choice. Instead of actually dashing heads against the stone, what did they do? They wrote their grief into poetry. They turned their pain into psalms. Even even if they weren't ready to sing, they were already writing their anger into songs. And they were gathering together and they were praying and they were working their way through their grief and anger and pain so that they could find a way forward together. And in this psalm, these people who lived so long ago, and God is asking us a question. What are we going to do with our grief? Are we going to nurse our grief until it turns into an anger that sets the world on fire? Or are we going to learn how to sing our grief? Are we going to learn how to dance our pain? Are we going to turn towards one another and find comfort in ancient rituals so that we and the whole world can find a way forward together? Let's pray. God, we pray that you would give us the courage to look into that corner of our heart where that deep and powerful and unhealed burden of grief resides. God, give us the wisdom to turn towards one another when everything in us is telling us to push people away. Give us voice. Give us art. Give us the courage to turn our pain into something troubling, something disturbing, something beautiful, something that we can offer to you so we might find a way forward. All these things we ask in Jesus. Amen.